Hello and welcome everyone to the AC Podcast. It's me, Troy, and I am honored to be here with you today. But I'm also excited because the Dream Team is back together. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I'm here with Andy as well as Steve, and we're excited to get into this topic today around Easter. Um, I hope you guys have been having a wonderful week in this Easter season as we go into the Easter weekend. Let's get into it. That's good to be back with you guys. Talking on Easter. I'm looking forward to this. This is a subject I feel like, I, I don't know about you, but I just, I feel like we don't talk about Easter enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially uh, Good Friday. I mean, by the time you're listening to this, the date of this release will be Good Friday if everything goes as scheduled. Um, and we talk, I mean, we don't talk about Easter enough, but we, even less than that, you know, like is Good Friday. We don't talk about the Good Friday a whole lot either. Yeah, I, I would say the same. Um, I'm one of those people that feels the same way about Christmas. I think if the only time we're talking about the, the, the birth of Christ and him coming to earth and what that meant for us is during the holiday season, we're missing a lot of important um, experiences, a lot of, you know, different levels of insight. Just, you know, imagine bringing up Christmas in the middle of summer, you probably have congregants looking at you strange, but it's not just the programs and the setups and everything. It is actually the truth of what that meant for us. Yeah, it's often uh, when we talk about Christmas at other times, it's often in the terms of incarnation. And I, I find that we don't talk about that enough, just the fact that God became you know god put on flesh and dwelt among us and just the the mind-boggling implications of that right as well one thing to think about is that in the gospels they give priority when you look at the length that they wrote on the passion week it mm-hmm. takes up the majority of of the gospels and so it's kind of unique in that way that we we don't talk you know a lot about it. I mean, we should talk more about it, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the writers wrote a lot about it. They're like, this is, <laughs> this is what the Gospels are leading to. This is what is the crux of what's happening here. Har, that, har, har. <laughs> that Jesus was crucified and that he defeated death. He, he rose from the dead. And there are a number of questions that are raised around the implications, kind of like what you're saying, Steve. I mean, you know, at Christmas, we, we celebrate just the, the magnitude of this idea that the creator of the universe became a human being. And, and more than that, of all the kinds of human beings that God could become, he becomes a servant and comes to us in humility and and in serving us goes to this this incredible depths that we get that we reach right at Easter died for you and mm-hmm. and this raises a lot of theological questions that we want to look at today well at least we want to look at 3 the three questions we're looking at today um in these questions of Easter um is did Jesus have to be crucified that's number 1 number 2 is the crucifixion divine child abuse? And number three, does everyone benefit from Christ's victory over death? Now, one of the reasons why we've chosen these three is because here at AC, 
we've received a number of inquiries lately, and that's something that, that we appreciate, you know, as listeners contact us and say, hey, my friend asked me this, or hey, I've been thinking about this. These are three questions we've received quite a bit, and I, and we thought, you know what, given the Easter season, this would be a great time for us to discuss these. And, and I teach as well, and re, I'm teaching a, a course in the area of apologetics, and I asked my class this question, did Jesus need to die on a cross? And, and it was interesting because my my the you know the students were really unsure how to answer that mm-hmm. and and just to be clear on the question because i know it, it can be you could you could look at that question from a couple different perspectives the the question is just simply you know did jesus you know need to die in that specific way i mean there are, are lots of different ways that humans can die did mm-hmm. he need to die on a cross and why a cross yeah um it, it's interesting that for those of us that have grown up in the church, there are a lot of um, just kind of surface facts that we know. For example, we often use the phrase about how Jesus died for our sins, right? Uh, and then if you actually press what that means, a lot of Christians don't really have an answer. Not that Christians don't have an answer, but a lot of Christians haven't learned to articulate what their viewpoint is. And so, and and to be fair, this question has been dealt with over the course of church history in, in, you know, by some of the most brilliant minds in the West uh, and and beyond. And so, um, you know, like, I don't want to be harsh with people who have trouble articulating this because I, quite frankly, I was one of them, right? Like, what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? And how do I make sense of that in light of, the Old Testament, the, the temple sacrificial system, and so forth. It's funny you should say that, because in preparing for, um, you know, this episode, I'm looking at some of these questions, and I was like, well, short answer, you know, it was like short answer yes, or short answer no, or, but then it was like, actually, how do I break this down to someone who doesn't have the the churchy Hannity, you know, language? If someone were to come off the street and say, hey, these are three questions I have because I've been thinking about it. Can you explain this to me? And to explain it to someone, I don't want to, for lack of a better term, layman's terms, it was like, oh, wow, we really have gotten to this place where we use it. And nothing wrong with the lofty terms, obviously. It's good to be able to um, put category to certain uh, belief systems and levels of doctrine. But it was also the side of honor evangelism. It's like, have we unpacked this enough for ourselves that, that we can look at it from an in-depth perspective, but also be able to relay it in such a way that is going to be beneficial um, to, to the people we're called to minister to? So let's talk about it then. Um, Andy, did Jesus have to die on a cross? As we get into that question, I think the first kind of question that's underneath that question, I hate to do that, but I'm going to do that, <laughs> is, you know, why, why was Jesus crucified? Uh, what was, mm. why was he sentenced to death, in other words? And, and that's actually an interesting question that a lot of Christians, again, aren't really prepared to answer that one. So, you know, you know why was he crucified? Like, uh, what, what did he do wrong, in other words, you know? Mm. Uh, and it's interesting that in Mark uh, chapter 14, 
you can take a look at this in your Bibles where Jesus is being tried and he is before Caiaphas, the high priest. And, and he asks, again, the high priest asked to Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, this is, as you guys know, in Jewish culture, out of respect for God, they didn't say Yahweh's name. And in fact, to such a degree that they didn't even put the uh, vows, vowels into uh, God's name. It was just consonant, so it couldn't be pronounced. That means then that Jews had to do a workaround, if you will, if they're going to talk about God. And in this case, what Caiaphas is asking Jesus is, are you claiming to be God? Like, mm-hmm. this is his trial. And, yeah. and what does Jesus do in response? Well, he doubles down at this moment and says, I am. And now, it, when you look at this in Greek, what he's doing here is like, he's first affirming, yes. And then secondly, he's using a similar uh, way of talking that Yahweh refers to himself to Moses, saying, I am that I am. It's this, it's this claim of aseity. And then Jesus, you know, goes, you know, that step further and saying, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this is a prophecy uh, in Daniel of God's coming judgment, and Jesus is basically telling Caiaphas, listen, that is who I am, and Caiaphas, you are judging me right now, but there's a day coming soon in which I will be judging you. Caiaphas is not confused. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and and Caiaphas, uh, ter- we read in verse sixty three that he tears his clothes and asks, "Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think?" And they all condemned him worthy of death. So Jesus was crucified for blasphemy. Yeah, and and right there, that's really telling. Often, when we are not sure in the twenty first century, whatever reading of the Gospels, when we're not sure, did Jesus claim to be God? Clearly, the first century Jews had no confusion over what it was that Jesus was claiming. And you see that in the Gospel of John, too, right? Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews are ready to stone him to death. And, and, and they tell him why, right? You being a mere man claim to be God, right? And so th- this, too, when Jesus says, I am, that's already like you said, Andy, that, that is the divine name of Yahweh that he is invoking there. Um, but... If there was any confusion, right, Jesus killed that confusion by saying, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And what is Caiaphas's, um, what what does Caiaphas say to the crowd? You've heard the blasphemy. Like, it's like, he he's not confused, nor should anybody else in the crowd be confused. It reminds me of times when I hear Steve on the podcast and I... And I'm just, I'm not confused. I just I grab my clothes and you know and I just I, I tear <laughs> I tear at my clothes. <laughs> no, he's up. Yeah. Other, he's upset. Like mm-hmm. he that like they're angry and they're ready for him mm-hmm. to be uh, to be killed. And so it's so it's interesting. So they're giving Jesus up to be killed, and mm-hmm. because this is a Roman prov like province that is under Roman control. Uh, the death penalty is going to be issued by the Romans in this case. Now, they could, I, I, the Jews could have done it, but they don't want Jesus' blood on their hands. Yeah. yeah. Right? They want the blood on the Romans' hands. Yeah. And the way the Romans killed people 
was via crucifixion. So let me throw a question back at you guys. Could Jesus have been hung? Could Jesus have been poisoned? You know, mm. could he have died in a different way? Did it have to be crucifixion? I, I would argue yes. Uh, and I'm primarily thinking of Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. And so, w- did Jesus have to die on a cross? Well, if you look at the prophecy, right, f- uh, for kind of foretelling the manner of death which the Messiah is going to die, what you start to see is it, it looks like it looks more and more like a crucifixion. It's almost as though when Jesus says at the, in that same conversation, no one takes my life, I lay it down. It was as though he was taking himself, taking himself out of the hands of the Jews and saying, you know what, even if you wanted to, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to set this up in such a way that you don't get to. I'm going to put myself in a position that the same people I came to save don't directly get to be the ones that hand out the punishment, although they push for it and they challenge for it. I'm going to put myself in such a way that the whole world is going to see what I did. Because I feel like, you know, and th- this is by implication, if it had been just, you know, taken, if it had just been followed through by the Jews, it would have, ne- it would have just stayed within that small group. But taking it to the length that Jesus did, everyone in that region would have heard about what was going on. They would have heard about this man on the cross who's claiming to be the king of the Jews and all the lengths and, and things that happen around there. Um, I, it, I think it just speaks to what Jesus was doing is I'm trying to put the whole world on notice of why I came. Well, and that, isn't that such an interesting point with regards to the cross that to the Jews, you know, he's, he's claiming to be the king of kings. And to the Romans, in the Gentile world, he's claiming to be the king, right? So you've got, like, he's, he, you know, it's a, it is a threat, if you will, to, to Caesar's authority sort of, sort of idea, this idea that, you know, our man's authority. And, and then there's this idea of even more than that, that, you know, Jesus is claiming to be the, the king of kings. And I think that's such an interesting point, uh, Troy, that, Okay, the Jews kill him, and it's a small mob that stones him to death, right? But, but you know, why, why then do you think this Roman form of crucifixion is a superior way to kill Jesus? Mm. Then we're agreeing that Jesus could have been killed in a different way. He could have been stoned to death or hung or whatever. It, you know, now we are arguing that, yes, it needed to be crucifixion, because it was prophesied that it would be crucifixion. So in that way, yes. But ultimately, that Jesus is going to die. But why do you think God prophesies and plans it that it's a crucifixion death? I, I, I believe it just sets him apart. You look throughout Scripture, it is implied that other people had come and made this claim, and they were dealt with. You know, uh, the, the, by the Jewish law, they were stoned for blaspheming. And so it was clear that they already kind of had a system of things that dealt with these sort, in their eyes, these sorts of people. And it was just, we're just going to deal with it. They're gone. But Caiaphas was not shocked by the things that Jesus was saying. 
it was as though he was seeing his power leave him. The the climax of teachers that had come claiming to be the Messiah. And they're like, okay, we have to stamp this out now. This is getting ridiculous. This is probably the most intense person that we have ever had come. And so for me, I look at it and I just feel like they were they were almost at their wits end. Like, oh my gosh, it's getting it's getting worse. Well, see, this is an interesting point in that, again, this goes back to prophecy that, that where you have this idea of, um, with regards in the Exodus, with the needing to lift up, right? You have this mm-hmm. staff that, that's lifted up, and if people look up to it, you know, they're healed sort of idea. And you see that it's a different kind of staff, right, that's getting lifted up. It's this cross, and Jesus is hanging from it. And yeah. as people look to this, they're going to be healed through faith, of course. But what get, what I, I can't help but think is interesting about this is it's almost as though God's rolling up his sleeves, sorts of sort of mentality, saying there are no tricks going on here. Jesus wasn't murdered in seclusion or where mm-hmm. people couldn't see it. He was lifted up so that everybody could see it, and he was slowly you know, murdered before your very eyes, you you can't be confused about the fact that he died. Yeah. Yeah, and interestingly, that's the part that just about every scholar on the New Testament would say, yeah, this is like a historical given, basically, right? Maybe except for the very handful of people who deny that Jesus even existed historically. Uh, Now, mind you, this so-called Jesus mythicism, just to give you an idea, it's kind of like the flat-earth theory of New Testament studies. Uh, hardly anybody takes it seriously. and um, But across the theological spectrum, New Testament historians grant that, yes, Jesus died. Now, this is the part that's really cool, <clears throat> where, you know, like like you said, Andy, this was a public thing, right? This was not just some thing that happened in private, because when you look at a lot of the religions— in the world, how they start is through some kind of a private revelation that you can't verify. So I'm thinking of Muhammad, for example. He is said to have received revelation, private revelation, uh, through Angel Gabriel from God. In right? a cave. Um, in a cave, right? When he was meditating by himself. And you have something very similar going on with Joseph Smith Jr., who is said to have received these golden plates, and, and he translated it using the seer stone and, and this hat kind of a thing. Um, and, and so a lot of these things... And, and then uh, I come from the East. Buddhism is very popular. What did the Buddha do, right? Gautama Buddha. He meditated, and he discovered the truth within himself, and then it is up to us to find the truth within ourselves as we meditate. Uh, whereas with Jesus, everything was done publicly. And, and that's one really helpful thing, if I can put it that way without being blasphemous, uh, about the crucifixion is that it was so in the face of everybody, and this was a public thing. It could be verified. Mm-hmm. And the, the Romans knew how to kill people. Like, there was no question, you know, that Jesus uh, was killed. And and I, I don't know about you guys. I, I'm curious your thoughts. But as I've reflected, you know, on Good Friday, as I've reflected on uh, Jesus's uh, death, I can't help but think that God chose a very humble, 
and painful, uh, humiliating death because of the severity of sin. Uh, I, I, that, that's, that's my thinking there. What do you guys think? Yeah. I, I'm that you, you look at, you know, if we were to all sit back and reflect on our lives and then you look at, you know, the world in, in general as some of the, the horrific things that have gone on, it's just, there's something and it, and it, and far be it for me to say like, oh, it had to be this way as if I know what, you know, as if I have a, a a scale in which, you know, punishment. Um, but like like you said, it just doesn't seem as though you consider considering the vastness of what God did for us. Maybe maybe it's just my upbringing, but anything less than what what was done on the cross, the leading up to the cross, the you know the the um the being whipped, the, the humiliation. Anything less than that almost cheapens what Christ did, in my eyes. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. In fact, there is a line of thinking in Christianity that kind of goes along that line. I mean, there's the whole moral influence theory of atonement that says that this uh, really kind of demonstrates, right, God's love for us. Now, Thomas Aquinas, um, he apparently believed that God could have. Uh, done this other way, like God could have just forgiven us without uh, demanding a sacrifice. Um, but he did it through the cross because it demonstrates just the horrendousness of sin and, and his and his love for humanity. So yeah. for Aquinas, the cross was a contingent thing. Um, now, he, obviously, he's he's thinking in terms of like. You know, was the cross necessary? What I argued earlier was in light of the Old Testament prophecies, yes, it leads to the cross. That's my opinion. But in this case, he's talking about like on a more meta level, does God, is there anything that's binding God to do it this way through the cross? And he's saying, he he would argue, no, the cross is a contingent thing in that sense. But what it does do is precisely that. It shows how horrendous sin is and it demonstrates God's love for us, right, in providing Jesus for our sacrifice. Which is interesting because this has been a challenge for different people and faiths, such as in Islam. This, for Muslims that I've talked with, this is a real challenge for them, is the, the idea of the cross, and that God would allow His Son to be humiliated and murdered in this way, because it's, it's, just, it's like it's too humble. It, it is... It, it's too shameful of mm. of a way to die, and that that's a that's a challenge for me. I can't help but wonder that perhaps as Christians we we just haven't thought enough about about that. That that maybe yeah. the Muslims right in that Absolutely. sense, right? That it is, and it is ridiculous, and we should we should think more about that. But but it yet crush it's, you, yeah. But it's wonderful. Now, mm-hmm. not everyone thinks it's wonderful though. Because as as you were saying, Steve, you know this on the one hand shows the le- the depths of God's love, but there are, are many, and this leads into our next question here. Uh, there are many though that would say, "Wow, this this, this sounds pretty dark." 
is is this not divine child abuse? I mean, that that God would do that to his son? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I think in this case, this is more prominently an objection against a particular theory of atonement. So uh, what we need to distinguish here is between the doctrine of atonement and the theory of atonement. And so the doctrine of atonement is just that Jesus died for our sins, and everybody agrees on that. But the theory of atonement is, okay, how does that cash out specifically? How is it and, satisfied? Yeah, and so there is a particular theory of atonement called penal substitutionary atonement, which is the idea that Jesus underwent the suffering that we deserved, uh, and he bore our guilt, and he uh, made satisfaction on God's divine justice, right? And so that's the part where, you know, a lot of people have an issue because it looks like the father then just punished the son, Jesus, um, to satisfy his anger, to appease his anger. And so that's where the charge comes in. This is cosmic child abuse. Now let's... Yeah. Uh, can we take another run at that, Steve? Yeah. And let's let's define a few things though for people, just in case they've never maybe heard this before, yeah. and they're they're kind of in a whirlwind of theology at the moment here. Right. Okay. I have the definition of penal substitution. Okay. Great. Right so here. so hey so Troy, could you just define for people what penal substitution uh, is, and and this idea of atonement? What is this? Yep. The penal substitution theory teaches that Jesus suffered the penalty for mankind's sins. Penal substitution derives from the idea that divine forgiveness must satisfy divine justice. That is, that God is not willing or able to simply forgive sin without first requiring a satisfaction for it. Mm. And so, and so, like, what does that mean then, this idea of atonement? Right. So the um, the word atonement is an English word, right? Atonement uh, apparently comes from an older word for at one bent. So it kind of gets at the idea of reconciliation. But the word atonement, that English word, isn't found in the Bible, of course, because the Bible wasn't written in English. Um, but you see, uh, you know, the, the you see expressions like propitiation expiation, and all those really fancy words. Reparation. And, ba- and so basically the idea is that, uh, according to penal substitutionary atonement, um, how, we, how Jesus died for our sins, how does that cash out? Well, for one, we are guilty under God because we are rebels who committed high treason against God Most High. Um, and it, now in order for God to forgive us then, Justice has to be carried out. How is that going to happen? Well, enter Jesus, right? The Son, right, in the person of Jesus, then takes on that penalty that we human beings deserved. He takes it on, and so he satisfies God's justice that way. And so that's how we are forgiven when we when we accept Jesus, what he has done. That's that's how we're forgiven. And God shows us mercy through that. So that, that's, that's the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. But often the charge is that basically God sort of went berserk in his anger 
on Jesus, right? Somebody who's innocent, right? So they'll say it makes no sense because God punished somebody innocent to forgive people who are actually guilty. And this is his son, no less. So this is cosmic child abuse. Now, this isn't coming out of a vacuum. Guys, this is, this is you know, this idea is, is coming from the, the Old Testament. That this is this is an idea that the Jews were very familiar with the idea of uh, propitiation. Uh, you know, the, by the way, there there's different words that get translated for the these ideas that are being discussed in the Bible when we're talking about the Day of Atonement, for example, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, depending upon how you pronounce that, and and so that's this day, right, where that's very in- interesting is they come to the, the Jews come to the temple and they are sacrificing for not only their sins, but ultimately you have this high priest, right, who is sacrificing for the sins of the nation. So you get this idea of, you know, your, your sin before the Lord, but also the community. I think it's important for us to appreciate because that's a part of the gospel I think have really been lost is that you've been personally saved into a relationship with God, but you've also been communally saved into a, a, a community or a church. During that time, uh, you know, you would have animals, spotless animals, you know, if the, you know, pure, if you will, that are being murdered, that are being uh, sacrificed, and their blood uh, in one case, is being sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies. And this is this idea of propitiation. This is this, I, this idea of, of appeasing God's wrath through blood, through sacrifice. Now, another one that happens, uh, there, there are multiple, whether it be a grain offering or an animal offering, but we have goats that will be brought before the high priest, for example. And you'll have two goats, one goat who the sin of the people is being imputed upon through the laying on of the high priest's hand, and then that, that goat is let go and, and, and led off into the wilderness, again, being symbolic, while the other goat is then sacrificed. Same thing happens uh, with with a bird. And so you you get this idea then that that the sin is being taken away on the one hand yet on the other hand it is it is atoning uh for God's wrath it is it is being sacrificed. Yeah. So then what's happening is with Jesus we're making this jump from not an animal being sacrificed and blood mm-hmm. being sprinkled on the mercy seat but it's a human sacrifice specifically Jesus's blood that is being sprinkled if you will on the mercy seat or that is appeasing the wrath of God and isn't it that that's really where some people get hung up on this idea going uh mm-hmm. that feels too far like the god would never be okay with human sacrifice or this looks like divine child abuse yeah. Um, now, if you want to read more about the connection between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the person of Jesus, read the book of Hebrews, right? Because that's all about that, about how this temple system was really a foreshadow of the the real thing that was to come, so to speak. And um, I, in fact, I was listening to this interview between Greg Kokel and William Lane Craig, and I thought uh, this illustration was really helpful, that Greg Kokel talked about how these 
temple sacrificial system, right? It's like a credit card where you have to pay the bill later, but you receive the benefit of that atonement right away, right? And so that whole bill is paid, so to speak, by Jesus' death on the cross. Um, Now, I know penal substitutionary atonement, this idea that Jesus uh, took on our penalty so we don't have to, right, Uh, gets a lot of bad rep these days. Um, But one of the things that I think people need to understand, this charge of, for one, this charge of penal substitution being a cosmic child abuse, um, nobody who holds to penal substitution will actually characterize it that way. So that that's for one. So at least if you want to put it charitably, you shouldn't be characterizing it that way. But secondly, Jesus did this voluntarily. He laid his life down, right? It's not like, uh, you know, the son was sent against his will by the father so the father can, you know, just let her rip, right? Like in his anger. There's that voluntary sacrifice aspect of it that i mean jesus after all is god right so it's it's in a sense god who voluntarily takes on that 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 penalty now this is one way that really helped me make sense of all of this when i was at biola one of my teachers kevin lewis he kind of described forgiveness this way and it made a lot of sense to me how does forgiveness take place Forgiveness takes place when the offended bears the harm done by the offense and chooses not to hold it against the offender. And in that sense, that's exactly what happened at the cross. Jesus took on the sort of the 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 consequence, the penalty of the offense. And uh, the the offended, right? God chooses not to hold it against us, the offenders. To call it to call it child abuse, it 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 destroys the united nature of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Bingo. It, it you know it tips the scales of authority and power and power within you know the for lack of a term the triune system. You know it, it it makes it like okay, well God's up here and Jesus is here and He has to do this and then the Holy Spirit's here and it's like it it was all. In one, it was all together, and I and I found a a, a quote that that put it pretty nicely, and I and I think it'll be beneficial to our listeners. Um, they started by saying the Trinity must not be anthropomorphized, which means we can't humanize the relationship between the Father and uh, the Father and the Son in our in our own eyes. You know, if we look at it and try and make it in a way that we understand, we're gonna be off base. And then they went on to say, the very idea of the cross as child abuse squeezes the Trinity into a man-made mold. It suggests that the father-son relationship is inherently authoritarian and therefore non-mutual. It implies that anger always reveals a lack of self-control. The need for appeasement indicates an unforgiving, vengeful attitude, but God isn't like us. Now, Troy, that's such a good point. And and that, that is focusing on one aspect of this that I think is important, and that that is, okay, what what is the relationship of God in this, and particularly the Son, and as Steve, as you were getting at, and His willingness, 
to receive punishment. But let, let me give an analogy here because I think a lot of people don't have the analogy of atonement quite right. Because the way that some people think of it is like, okay, you got God the Father that takes Jesus the Son out, you know, to the whipping post and ties him there and says, okay, now I'm going to punish you for the sins of the world sort of mentality. And then God unleashes, you know, starts to undo his belt, right? And then unleashes his wrath on his son sort of mentality. That's not the idea of atonement. The, the idea of atonement is that you've got God the Father, but it's not Jesus the Son, it's you and I that are on the whipping post, or that are being led out to be crucified, that are going to die. And it reminds me actually of this, um, this powerful scene in the movie The Last of the Mohicans, if you've, if you've seen that, where there is, there is this call for blood for what has been done to this these this people and there is this this girl because of who her father is that she is going to die right and th- these this guy loves her and is like no like I'll I'll take her place uh, I will die in her place and so he ends up being burned alive for her. And this is the idea of atonement is that it's you and I that are that are being led out to be killed for our sins and it's Jesus who willingly steps in because of his love for us and says no I will take their place. Now here's the question that goes with that, right? Did God have to do that? Right? Couldn't he have just forgiven us? without this human sacrifice. Um, and so the idea is, and you'll hear this sort of a thing who, you know, from people who are very much against penal substitution. Um, I won't name any names, but I have very specific people in mind. But the idea is, it's not like, you know, God has to kowtow to some abstract notion of justice, right? Right. Like in the Euthyphro Dilemma, for those of you who are not sure what the Euthyphro Dilemma is, uh, we have talked about it in other podcasts, but you can look that up. But one of the horns of this dilemma says that, well, is morality sort of outside of God and he has to sort of bow down to it kind of a thing, right? So this is kind of a similar objection. Is there such a thing as justice that's outside of God that God has to kind of bow down to, that he has to fulfill such that he requires this kind of sacrifice to take, you know, to pay the penalty for our sins, those kinds of things. And so uh, some of these writers find penal substitution quite unconscionable in that way. Couldn't God just forgive us without requiring a sacrifice? What do you guys think? You have been listening to part one of Easter, Why the Cross? Stay tuned to listen to part two releasing on Easter Monday. From all of us at Apologetics Canada, Happy Easter.